You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I don't know about you, but I've um, Netflix has gotten me with the, um, with the documentaries, um, some about real life. And you know, like I'm a, I'm a 90s kid, so a lot of times I'm just trying to go back and relive. I'm trying to understand, like, was, did that really happen? You know, did that, did Nancy Kerrigan really exist? Did, did we really just let that happen? You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> did Enron, I mean, it's just some of these things that just like, because I, we're, we, you know, I'm their age now. It's like when, when, I'm, when I'm watching some of these scenes. And so um, this one summer, I got on all these 30 for 30s, Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boy Pistons in Michigan and Duke and all that stuff. And so that got me into, you know how Netflix is, it's just a big rabbit trail. So I'm in this six, I might have watched all six episodes straight in a row, the O.J. Simpson thing. I watched the, I watched the Fox special after it because I just couldn't believe, I was like, did this really happen? Did that, is that a real true story? And so I put some of the faces, not even all the faces uh, on the screen, it's just the cast of characters. I mean, you couldn't write a, a soap opera, you know, this, this dramatic. Um, uh, OJ, one of O.J.'s buddies is like the Kardashian dad which is inc- it's unbelievable. You think about, you know, the longevity of this thing. All these super, you know, good-looking people, you know, and, and there's this pool boy named Cato. I mean, that's straight out of, a, of, a, of an 80s, 90s movie. His long blonde hair, Cato, he's like the pool boy. You heard the dog barking. And then there's the whole lawyer team. And the lawyer team was just absolutely, you know, crazy. Like Johnny Cochran literally had an alter ego on Seinfeld for a little bit because of just how charismatic he was and, and what an what a awesome orator he was. And uh, for all the coolness, they called that lawyer team, you know, on the, um, the fence side of it, you know, they called them the dream team. Uh, the the, the Marsha Clark, you know, uh, other side of it was just like super uncool. It was like the cool kids and the uncool kids, and they just squared off. And it went on for like 10 months, if you guys remember. If you were, were you alive when this happened? Did you guys see the Ford Bronco thing? I mean, there's actually, did you guys know this? There's actually two Ford Broncos. There's two of them. There's one was the getaway, like through the highway, and the other one was the getaway from... Uh, allegedly, from the murder. And so, uh, but anyways, there's, there's two Ford Broncos. It starts out, and it's just them and his football buddy just ripping down, you know, the, the highway with all these choppers and trying to get him to stop. He's got a gun in the car. And they pull him over, and they start a 10-month thing. And so they bring in all of the evidence. There's just un, 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 uh, unsurmountable amounts of evidence and, and DNA and, and all this stuff that, that the blood's in the car and the blood's on the shoes and the blood's on the glove and blah, 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 blah. It's like all, all pointing, you know, you know, to OJ. Until we get to this, and this is the crazy dramatic part, this, this, this investigator named Mark Furman, okay? And so there's this guy named Mark Furman who is like overseeing all of the samples of the blood and all of the cases built on the blood. It's all based on whether or not we can link this blood to OJ. And Mark Furman, they get into his history and they dig out these tapes and Mark Furman is just the most, most ruthless, ugly, racist person you've ever heard. And he's got all these racist epithets and all these things on his phone calls and stuff. And so, uh, and so ultimately, ultimately, we come all the way down to the verdict, and this 10-month case comes down to a four-hour decision. You think about this, 10 months of evidence for a four-hour decision. And there's like 90 million you know, viewers, and there's protesters all outside. And so, and so what uh, the ESPN documentary does, if you witnessed and saw you know, the actual events of the trial, never you know, thought about it again or processed it again, what this ESPN thing does that I think really well is it takes that trial uh, in, in, in the timeline of it, and it zooms out. It zooms out, not just over the trial, over the individuals, but over the, over the nation. 
and helps us understand, really, the fanfare, because it wasn't just about people like trying to figure out who murdered who. It was, it was there was protests, and there were signs, and there was deep feelings about it. And, and what ESPN helps us see is in the zoom out is that this, tra- this, this trial was not actually about the murder of one person by another. It was about race and the, and the tension that existed between, between one race and another. It wasn't about justice between the killing of one person to another. It was about the injustice that was taking place between one race and another. And so it tracked it back to the 1991, do you guys remember this, the Rodney King beating that was going on, this other high-speed chase that ended in this um, African-American person being be- brutally you know, beat down in the same city, you know, in the same area, as the O.J. Simpson thing happened. And so what that documentary helps us understand is that for all the seemingly injustice that took place in the micro case, in the macro case, it was a representation of the, of the injustice in the larger scope. And so what we're reading here today in, uh, in Acts chapter 6 is, is a trial that takes place between Stephen and the Sanhedrin. This is the end of the first segment of the book of Acts. Acts 1 through 7 is about the church in Jerusalem. And uh, the portrait that's painted between the church in Jerusalem is a contrast between two temples. One temple that's staying and one temple that's going. One temple that's made of bricks and one that's made of people. One temple that leaves broken, crippled people outside its gates and one people that can say, get up and walk. And so the, the, the trial, really, of two temples crescendos into this case of Stephen versus the Sanhedrin. But as Stephen takes the stand, Luke, all of a sudden in his long 54-verse speech, zooms out and, and takes these charges that are really pitted against Stephen, as Stephen stands, he doesn't only defend his innocence, but proves their guilt and sends a message not only to Sanhedrin, but all of the nation of Israel, and really, if we're reading it through the book of Luke, all of humanity, to say that not only is Stephen innocent, but they're guilty. They're guilty. And they're guilty, really, of the two charges that they're they're claiming against him. Number one, they claim that he and his uh, followers of the way, the people he does life with, and his rabbi Jesus are making this incendiary claim that they're going to, quote, destroy the temple. That's the claim. We're going to put you on the trial because you said you're going to destroy the temple. And secondly, the second claim is that you have been moving to change the customs of Moses. When in fact, thou doth protest too much, the exact opposite is true, that not only is Stephen and the church innocent of these two claims, but they are guilty of them. That they're the ones that have turned that thing into a den of robbers. That they're the ones that have desecrated the, 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 the temple. That they're the ones that have changed the custom of Moses so much so that they're whitewashed tombs and on the outside they're clean, but the inside they're empty. And he stands to say this to them and to us, that Jesus has, ne- has never come to, to destroy uh, his temple. He's zealous for his temple. You've never seen Jesus more angry, more sad, more tearful than when he's turning tables in his temple. He loves his temple. Jesus didn't destroy his temple. He destroyed their temple so he could raise up his church. This is what John 2, 19 says, when he comes into that scene, Jesus, remember, he makes the whips and, he, and, and he, finds, um, he finds just people being extorted, the poor being extorted, and, and people are selling pigeons and doves and so forth. He makes his quarter whips and he, and he drives out all these people. And, uh, and, and he says to them, he says to them, destroy this temple in John 2, verse 19, and I will raise it up in three days, which is a cryptic way of saying that, uh, that Jesus, on the cross and in the tomb, was going to become the temple, to die to the temple, so that he could give birth to the church. The temple system 
It's basically, I'll just explain it to you this way in more conventional terms. The temple system is made of three different elements. It's made out of uh, the temple, the building that's uh, built in Jerusalem, built by Solomon. Uh, It's made of the priests, the go-betweens that go into the temple and offer sacrifices and rituals. Temple space was where heaven and earth were supposed to meet. The priest was the go-between between people and man, man and God and God and man, and, and the sacrifice was the offering. And so you might say it this way, is that the temple was always meant to be the good place so that the priests that could be the good people could offer the offerings, which is the good stuff. The good place and the good people and the good stuff, Jesus comes in and sees that within the law, the people in, in, in access and trying to get to the good place, to be the good people, to offer the good stuff, only turn out to make these beautiful buildings to become dens of robbers that are full of idols. And so what happens on that cross is Jesus not only dies as sin, but he dies as the law. Jesus actually becomes the temple. He walks with the kingdom of heaven. He is the good place. He becomes the high priest. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. And he becomes that sacrifice and that offering on our behalf that he dies, he becomes the temple, dies as the temple, so that he can give rise to the church three days later through the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, this is what, this is what the, the church becomes, is the temple becomes the place where heaven and earth dwells, the place that we as Christians walk with Jesus for the rest of our days, where we become like Jesus as the priests, the good people, and we become uh, the living sacrifices, as Romans 12 says, to walk out our lives as sacrifices to Jesus. And so that's what Luke is saying to us in the book of Acts in Luke 2.42, if you remember. It's not just a bunch of people hanging out for a small group. Acts 2.42, it's not just, a, just the fellowship of just people hanging out and, and eating good food. It is that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, and gave everything to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Luke is trying to tell us that's what the temple was supposed to look like. That's what the temple was supposed to look like. The temple was not made to be full of extortionists and green, greed and den of robbers. The temple was supposed to be a place where there's wonders and, and signs and miracles and healings, a place where there was needs met of every poor person that would come, that they would not leave with needs, a place that there would be complete unity of all the different tribes and tongues and nations would, would cry out right and hear in their own language. This is what the temple was always meant to be, not some place where we have tables full of gold trinkets and idols, that the priests were not supposed to be these fancy people that build build walls and take stones out of their buildings to kill martyrs and, 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 and persecute prophets, that the priests were supposed to be people of bread and word and prayer, where they were caring for widows and orphans in the places of righteousness and justice at their tables, not just in the temples, and they were living out their lives as, as, as human sacrifices. In other words, Jesus, if he's guilty of anything, he's guilty of this. He is tearing down every one of our temples so that he might build up his church, at which the gates of hell cannot stand. So we're going to methodically kind of move through the whole story. Because it's, it's, it's the power of framing questions that really makes the lawyer have authority. Like if I tell you that, you know, a brother is hitting his sister. If I say, you know, the brother was being mean and the brother was hitting his sister. And I ask the brother, hey, did you hit your sister? And the brother says, yes. Is the brother guilty or the sister guilty? Who's guilty, right? The brother's guilty. But if you zoom out, if you widen the frame, and you ask the brother, hey, what, what was happening? What did you do? And the brother said, well... The sister was going to go grab a knife to hurt herself. The brother's not guilty. 
when you see the frame widened. So this is the story. He widens it out, and he tells the whole story. Because in the whole story is the truth. In the whole story is the testimony. And the testimony is this, is that every temple that we ever built to get to the good place, to be the good people, and to offer the good sacrifices, could never offer up to the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus had to become the temple and die as that temple. We could not be our own temple. He had to die as the temple to give birth to the church. And that's precisely what he's doing in this place today. So this is what it says. We're going to walk through it uh, kind of verse by verse. It says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Are you coming to destroy the temple? Are you coming to change the, 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 uh, the laws of Moses? You know, Brene Brown, you know, she says this thing about vulnerability and insecurity is that if you watch the things that come out of your mouth, the, the people that you attack and the things that you say are often the things you're most insecure about. That if you're busting on somebody because they're disorganized, you probably have an insecurity that you're proud that you're more organized because you had to work to get that way. Or you're mad because, you know, people, you know, um, uh, um, you know are uh, whine a lot or something like that, you know? Uh, usually it's the people that, that are busting other people for whining. It's usually they're the ones that are, that are experiencing the most ent- and the least amount of gratitude. And so usually it is that we protest too much about the things that we're the most guilty of. And that's exactly what's going on in verse 1 when um, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish law, comes before Stephen and says, hey, are these charges true? So he goes all the way old school, man. And if you've never been to seminary class, he's going straight back to day one. He didn't even answer the question. He widened that thing out to the entire Old Testament. And so if you've never read the Old Testament, this is a great day to learn it all, right? So this is how it goes. Verse 2. To this he replies, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, God said to him, leave your country and your people and go to the land I show you. So this is what he needs you to know. He says, look, y'all sometimes are so stuck on that tree, you're not seeing the forest. It's interesting to me that your question starts with the law and forgot all about the promise. And I want to remind you that before you ever see the words thou shalt in the Bible out of God's mouth, they all did not come before the I am and the I will. This book, this testament is not about a law. It is about a promise. And the law and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices, they are not the point. They are the things, the signs that point to the promise. If I take you up to Disneyland and we stop at the two-mile marker and we take a picture in front of the two-mile marker in front of Disneyland and go home, we're idiots, right? Because the sign is not the point. The sign is to get you to the point. And if you are so focused on this law and you miss the point, you're going to be stuck on this forest and miss the trees. And the trees are the promise. Don't forget the promise. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran after the death of his father. God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after whom would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out to that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of 12 patriarchs. So when you read the story of of, of Abraham, let me ask you a question. Is the story of Abraham a triumph or a tragedy? There are three promises that God gave Abraham. This is what the whole Bible is run on. There's three tracks. God promised him land. God promised him people. And God promised him a name. 
So this is my question. Is, is Abraham's story a success story? By the time he dies, what Luke has just said, or Stephen through Luke has just said, is Abraham barely has enough land to put his foot on. He put all of his money into this little plot by the trees of Monray in the place that, that told him to do it, to bury him and his wife. He had enough money in his back pocket. By the time that he died, the most faithful guy, right, in the land, has enough money to bury him and his wife. That's about it. Tragedy or triumph. Number two, he's got one son, which he kicked and streamed to have his entire life by the time he was 99 or whatever. He has like Ishmael, a son that he took things into his own hands, who is now uh, having this kind of a, of a, of a curse th- throughout, throughout his life, even though he's ultimately blessed. And, and then a, and a third son that's, um, that comes from um, a, a concubine that, that he had during his life, okay? And the only sign of his new name is the circumcision. <laughs> so he's got a little plot of land to bury him and his wife. He's got one son who he barely had once he was like 100 years old. And three, the only thing that he has in terms of his new name is the circumcision. Is he a tragedy or a triumph? And your answer to that question tests your ability to recognize the promise. Because if his life is a tragedy, you don't understand the promise. This is the thing, is that we, we live in a, in a kind of chronological bias. And we get up in arms about the people that read the scriptures in the Old Testament that couldn't see Jesus for their nose because they were so caught up in the temple and the priests and the good place and the way they defined it, the good place and the good people and the good things. But my, my perception is that probably one of the most preached books in the Bible in churches today is the book of Genesis, because if there's anything that we want and get and can buy into, is the blessing of land and people and stuff. And we, we suffer, I think, from the blindness of what I call filling the blessing blank. We read Genesis and we read Revelation and we leave out the cross. Because I get land, I mean, that must mean real estate, Right? The four picket houses and all the perfect little thing and the, and, the, and the farm tables and all the cool, you know, charcuterie boards. I want the land. I want the land. God's bringing me my land. I know you promised me my land. That's what we want, right? Is that what God gave Abraham? Who he calls Phil the faith? The people, the people, all the people. I want to be with friends and Monica and Chandler and my community and all my bros and I'm just going to hang out with the people. Is that what he meant? Is that what he gave Abraham? The stuff the good deeds, the sacrifices, did he do a bunch of good stuff like we did Abraham, you know, like lead a movement for humanity and make everything better? No, he trusted God and followed him. So our, our, our perception of if, if Abraham was blessed or cursed all has to do with our dictionary for what blessing is. And this is what the Bible is trying to tell us. Genesis, as I might have to switch up my microphone here in a second, is that we don't have the opportunity to fill in that blank. Jesus has filled the blessing blank. You know what the blessing is? Jesus Christ. Jesus, the kingdom of heaven. If you're poor, rich, or in prison, the kingdom of heaven is his land. That is the land. It's not your land. It's not man. It's his land. The kingdom of heaven. The people. The people. His descendants. It's, it's not because you're going to have the best kids and the 2.4 kids and the dog in the house. It's, it's disciples. It's the church. You know who his people are? You know the people, the sand, the sand on the shore and the, and the stars in the sky? You know who those people are? It's you and me. We're his people. That's the blessing. If that's not good enough, then you don't know the blessing. What's the name? What's the name that we're supposed to get? It's the name above every other name. It's the name of Jesus. It's that he that knew new sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of Jesus. If Jesus' name is not good enough for us, if we need some other brand name, then we don't deserve Jesus. He died the death, right? He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we couldn't die to give us the life we don't deserve. 
And that is the name. And if we don't see those things as the name, if we can't understand the acorn in the middle of that oak tree, we don't get the blessing. Abraham's life was a triumph. It was a triumph. If a person has cancer and even a little bit of of their disease goes into remission, they know that that's not the curse, that's the blessing. Even if it's a little bit, they can recognize that. If you're in here in debt, and every single month you have gone more and more into the red, but even one month, even if you're not out of debt, but one month goes into the black, you can recognize that blessing, can't you? You can recognize that blessing. And so it is with Jesus. When we're reading this Genesis thing, we know that before the law, there was a blessing. Before the thou shalt, there was an I will and I am. And this is what this promise is, is targeted at. This is what it's aimed at, the blessing of Jesus, the blessing of Jesus. So Stephen's testimony takes us further along into the story, in and out of Egypt. And it turns out, as you notice that the prophecy from the beginning, it wasn't an accident. It was part of the plan that Abraham's family was going to get numerous and go through Egypt because what they learn in Egypt is that the problem isn't just that Egypt is around them, but that Egypt is inside of them. When they go through Egypt, what they recognize is that their problem isn't just that they're afraid of Egypt, it's that they love Egypt, that they want Egypt, and that Moses is leading them into a rescue that's not only getting them out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of them and out of us. And so this is what it says in verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise, it wasn't an excursion, it wasn't a detour. It was part of the plan to go through and not around Egypt. The number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. But there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt, he dealt treacherously with our people, and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. And at that time, Moses was born, and from the beginning, we knew he was no ordinary dude. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in the wisdom of Egyptians, was powerful in speech and action. And so what, uh, what, what Luke is trying to say here and what Stephen is trying to say in this story is that although uh, Moses was uh, being raised in Egypt, he was actually being raised by Jesus. What we're seeing here is that this no ordinary child is in the middle of Egypt, and despite all of the, 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 the cravings and the trappings of the Egyptian culture, none of that have any bearing on him because Egypt wasn't raising him. It was Jesus. This is the crazy thing about, I love in Hosea 11, it's my favorite passage is that you and I, because of God's covenant, if you are in Christ Jesus, we're being, we, being led by strands of human kindness. Even that Girl Scout leader, even if they were a believer or not believer, that Girl Scout leader was being directed by the hand of Jesus. Even, even, even your parents, in their best days and their worst days, they were just a glove in the hand of the one who's in charge of those in charge. It was always Jesus. And so what happens is, is that he's going to send Moses down to rescue these people, but ultimately it's not Moses rescuing them. It's Jesus. He's no ordinary man because the Spirit was with him for power and wisdom for all the days of his life. So when he's 40 years old, he decides to go visit his own people, the Israelites, And he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So when he went to his defense, he avenged him by killing an Egyptian, right? Uh, Right right intent, Moses, wrong plan. Taking matters into your own hand. Right intent, right goal, wrong means. He killed Egyptians with his own hands. Verse 25, And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites uh, who were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them by saying, men... Uh, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? And so I guess it's not the major point, but I do think it's applicable. 
straight out of this text, is oftentimes I, I find that people, um, when dealing with, with, with a messenger that God is sending to them, will oftentimes find 10% of what's wrong with the messenger in order to throw out the message, right? That somebody is coming to you, and they're just too young to listen to, and, and then they're too old. That Jesus will send people to people, and they're just so uncool and bland and, and vanilla and just boring until they're a rock star, and then we don't listen to them either, <laughs> right? That they don't have enough signs and wonders, and they don't walk in power until they're too sign and wondery, and they chase signs and wonders, and they walk in too much power. You can't win either way. Either they don't know any of the Bible because they never went to seminary, or they know too much of the Bible, and they're too stuck up. This is the point, is that it's not really about the messenger. It's about the message. This is what it says, right? This is the, this is the reason why they're not listening to Moses, so they think. But the man who is mistreating the other one, Moses sets, com, comes, comes over to him, and he sets Moses aside, and he says to him, the real heart of the reason why they're not listening to him, who made you king and ruler over us? Who made you the boss? Who made you so big, right? So verse 28, are you thinking of killing me the way that you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner with the two sons. And so this is the idea is that although, although it, was, it was seemed like Moses, a man who was at this point a murderer, who was coming to rescue them, it wasn't really him, it was Jesus. And therefore, by rejecting Moses' rescue, really they're rejecting the rescue of Jesus. So verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Where he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord, a man that talked to God, that knew Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, verse 32, I am God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And so it is, they, they say it again, and usually in the Bible when things happen two times, it really means that it's not just an accident or an incident. I mean, it was by, by design. The same exact thing happens. They reject him not just once, but twice. The Lord says to him, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the name, this is the same Moses, um, <clears throat> This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be ruler and deliver by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him was in a bush. He led them out of Egypt before its signs and wonders in Egypt and the Red Sea and the 40 years in the wilderness. And so this is, this is the deal. I mean, I, I brought up this Bill Nye, or Bill Nye, Bill Mayer uh, <laughs> interview. Bill Nye's the science guy, right? Bill Mayer's the uh, news per person. I don't know if I completely explained it because it was confusing because it was. Mike Tyson was interviewing Bill Mayer and asking him why, why he didn't believe in Jesus, you know? And, and I told you last time, you know, he went on about um, the, summer, the winter solstice and why every culture comes up with some type of a resurrection thing as the days grow shorter and, and why there wasn't, enough, um, uh, there wasn't enough confrontation to the issue of slavery in the Bible and why that was, that was a problem for him and so on and so forth. But ultimately what the Bible is saying, it's not so much about the messenger, it's about the message that's so confrontational to us. And really, for all of the analytical arguments and the proof that we demand and the signs and wonders that we want and the, the claims that, and the indictments that we make on the church for not being you know, beautiful enough or relevant enough or justice-oriented enough or, 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 or logical enough, all of these things are really mass disguises for the real reason why we don't listen to Jesus. You know why we reject the rescue of Jesus? Because we want to do what we want. If you go look at Bill Mayer's thing, like, I don't know the guy, but, like, I don't think he's fighting slavery. 
I think he's selling podcasts. And I don't think he looked into the claims of Christianity. I think he just wants to do what he wants. And that's ultimately the reason, right? Why, why we're rejecting is not because we're lacking messengers. It's because we don't like the message. We don't like the message. And so here's the big, right, ringing 3 a.m., the big ringing claim that I think Stephen is making before the Sanhedrin and ultimately, I think, to us, is that the story of God and man is not that God is hiding while man is looking. It's that God is looking while man is running and kicking and screaming. I'll tell you a little bit of a trip down memory lane. You know, the strands of human kindness in my life. Um, I was uh, born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, and just living my life, listening to DMX, whatever I wanted to do, you know, back in the day, doing, doing good things for the world and for the, for the culture. So, um, so I met Kyra at 15 years old, and uh, we lived down the street, Swanson Avenue. Me and her played basketball in the same gym. I played on the freshman team in the auxiliary gym, and she played on the girls' team and so forth. And so Derek Mabry came up one time and said, you should go talk to Kyra. And I was like, no way. So... Um, was, it is way out of my league. Was, was and is way out of me, my league. So I go, go and talk to Kyra. And um, ultimately, Kyra has a thing where she's like, you know, uh, you should come with me to youth group. If we're going to be dating, you should come with me to youth group. That's kind of the deal. And so I go to youth group. And here's the truth of it. The truth of it is, I didn't really love youth group. I did like Kyra, though. I sat with Kyra. I didn't even know what, it was Matt Adams. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, why is there, why does this place smell like coffee? Why is everybody's jeans so boot cut around here? Like, why is everybody's hair so vertical? Like, I was just so lost, you know, I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but Kyra's here, so I'm sticking with it. But the Lord provided me, and I told you the story before, you know, it, it's, it's not usually a number of people, it's a name. It's a person that comes. Isaac, youth pastor, came to my tennis match, and I don't know why he was coming to my tennis match, because I was on like the JV team, right? This is now, now junior year, later on down the road. And he opened his Thunderbird car up for his wife, Rhonda. And I thought, I don't know where that guy's coming from or what he's doing, but I like what he does, and I'm going to start following him. You see this? What did I want? I came for a cute girl, right? And I got Jesus. So at 17, you know, I'd learned how to play a lot of, like, tab guitar songs with Dave Matthews. I could play all the songs, you know, the Watchtower and the Stone Crash and Ants Marching, and I could play all the songs because it's, like, impressive, you know, for... Uh, girls and stuff. And so, <clears throat> so I'm like, I'm going to learn all these Dave Matthews songs. Back then, it was impressive. I don't think it's impressive anymore, right? And so I go to the youth group, and I'm like, you know what? I can, it don't have to be impressive at the bonfire. I can be impressive at church. I can play in the youth group band. So I tried out for, for, for the worship band, you know? And so, um, so ultimately, it's like one thing leads to another. I like didn't listen to all. It was like Jars of Clay, and then maybe like DC Talk. And then I got into like Third Day, but then somebody handed me the Enter the Worship album. And that Psalms album from Shane and Shane. And my heart was completely changed by worship. You understand? I signed up with a guitar to be cool, but God gave me a heart of worship. I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't looking for that. At 19, I went off to college, and I, um, I wanted to be a film major. I joined the film class, and on Monday nights, I used to watch, like, Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, like all these movies at night, and like take notes on the sound, and like I literally was going to go be a filmmaker, like I wanted to go make make movies, and uh, it was about halfway through, and I realized like there's a difference between people that like movies and make movies, and I am not that second category, right? <laughs> but I found a small group there, like I was born and raised in the big seeker church, right? But I found the small group, 
where they would ask you about how you're doing with computer stuff every week, and they would pray for you, and they'd walk you through the scriptures, right? And so I came into college. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for a career, and I find a community. I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. Even in my experience with, with, with church and, and staff, the Lord put my seminary ultimately in high school. <laughs> I couldn't get a job in, in youth pastor world. Just, you have to be in a church. You have to love a church. You, your wife has to love the church. It's just a hard thing to be in a place and kind of find a job that all settles and falls in the right place. And so ultimately, I, I did seven, eight years in the public school system, and it was a fantastic seminary. <laughs> it teaches you how to deal with people and how to organize and, and, and how to how to see a goal to the completion and so forth, all these types of things. I'm not saying that replaces Bible school, but I'm just saying it was, it was, I was coming into this thing, right, to be a hipster youth pastor. I want to work with Young Life and have the hipster kids around me and have the Nalgene Bible with all the stickers, and he put me in Southside High School, the public high school, right? But he taught me about ministry. I wasn't looking for ministry. I came in for hipster, and he gave me a heart for care, and so this is the deal, is that 10 times out of 10, not nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, when you give me the map to get to the good place with the good people to do the good stuff, I choose Egypt every time. I don't choose the wilderness, I choose Egypt. I don't choose Moses, I choose Pharaoh every time. And he's too good to let me. We reject his rescue, and he keeps rescuing us. He keeps rescuing us. And so ultimately, it comes down with a sweeping gavel to the verdict. Because when we watch these cases, you know what we really want? We want to know what happens, but like we're intrigued because we just want to know what would bring somebody to do something like that. We want to see the heart of it. We want to understand not just the crime, but the motive, the heart behind it. And so Stephen does, does the justice for the case before the Sanhedrin. In verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. And here's the heart. Verse 40, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, you don't even know what happened to that dude. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. Here's how you know Chick-fil-A is godly. <laughs> because it wants to keep us from eating cows, is why. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed it in their own hands and the things that they made. You know, right now it's real trendy, like, handcrafted beer and handcrafted coffee and handcrafted jeans and handcrafted wallets. Handcrafted is not cool in the Bible. <laughs> Hands craft dens of robbers is what goes on in the Bible. Hands that they had made in verse 42, but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of sun and moon and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets from, from the beginning to the end. You know when they, they built the big golden cow and, and Moses went up there and he comes down with the tablets heartbroken? That was God's wedding night. Imagine to, to betroth a bride and get married, and you come home on the night of your wedding night, and she's having an affair with someone else. It's not like, you know those memes, like this is how it started, this is how it's going? This is how it's always been going. It's not a faithful spouse that turned around something. It is a from beginning to end unfaithful, unfaithful spouse, and this is the motive, because 10 times out of 10, people don't love Jesus, they love cows. When you get to the end of it, when you get to the bottom of it, this isn't an accident, this isn't an incident, this is time after time after time. We want to fill in the blessing blank because we don't want Jesus. We want Egypt. And that's what the whole pilgrimage, the whole voyage was about. That's what the whole Testament, Old Testament is about, if you missed it. 
and the stars of your God Rephan, and the idols you made for worship, and therefore I will send you to exile in, into Babylon. And so he, then he just goes for the juggler. This is what he says. This is, this is why all of this commotion is going on. Well, I'm going to go right down to 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always, not sometimes, not on bad days, not on good days, always. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Your temples that are whitewashed tombs, your dens of robbers, and your empties of the contents of what the temple was supposed to hold, which is the Holy Spirit, because you resist him. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him? And you have received the law that was given through the angels, but you haven't obeyed it. But this is Stephen's heart. The heart of the Sanhedrin is put to bear next to the heart of Stephen, Acts 7, and then we'll close. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, they gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up from heaven or to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, that's what a faithful witness needs. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. What makes, a, what makes a witness witness? What makes a witness credible, their testimony critical, is they're looking the right direction. Look, he says, I see heaven, it's open, and the Son of Man is standing there. I see, I see heaven, and Jesus is the right hand of the Father, and he's in charge of everyone that's in charge. And then 57, at this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, so quote-unquote false witnesses, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Stephen. So here it is, the mission, it keeps on going from Jerusalem, or Saul, excuse me, from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. The feet, the very hands, right, of a, of a, of a dead martyr comes the birth of a living martyr. This is the man that's gonna take us through the next two chapters, the next two acts, right? At the death of Stephen comes the rise of Saul. You cannot stop the witness from happening. Verse 59 when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. So I say all this to close on this first one through seven chapter. It's kind of like an epilogue of Stephen's speech and really a, a moment to pause and reflect for the, all of Acts chapters one through seven is that in the tale of, of two temples where the, second, the first temple is made of brick and mortar and the second one is to be the true witnesses, um, it might not surprise you. I don't know. If you read the Bible a lot, it probably doesn't surprise you. Right, all the little twists and turns and the nuggets that you can pull out of it if you stop and think about it. But wouldn't you believe that the major identifier of what the church is supposed to be doing to witness, to be witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, and the end of the earth, the word witness in the Greek means martyr. How do you say the word witness in Greek? You ask somebody, a Greek scholar, how do you say it? He'd say martus. It means martyr. To be a witness is to be a martyr. To be a Christian is to be a martyr. So in my mind, I have this thing, right? Like I think a martyr is the guy that maybe just half lost his mind and I pay him a couple hundred bucks and he goes out to some country where Christianity is not allowed and he gets killed and, and that's a martyr. And I don't want to dishonor that. Like there is a very, I believe there is a category like that. For those who physically lose their life for sharing their faith, I think there is a, a reward and an honor that, the rest of us won't touch, okay? But in the broad sense of the category of martyr, there isn't just like lucky Christians and unlucky Christians. There's just dying or living martyrs because all of us are martyrs. 
When, when, when Stephen drops dead at the feet of Saul, and Saul eventually gets knocked off his horse to become Paul, his quote still testifies to Stephen's life. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's not lucky and unlucky Christians or people that die for their faith or live for them. There's living martyrs and dying martyrs, but all of us are martyrs. All of us are martyrs. And so um, speak, speaking with Kyra, we, we have a lot of people, like I'm so old now, right? So the people that I grew up under that are 40 are now 70, right? So they're approaching 70. And here's what I love about, you know, pe- people are 70. They're just a lot more chill. If you notice that, Seinfeld has a great joke where like, once you get up to that, that 70 level, you just stop looking when you back up. You're just like, I'm old and I'm backing up. It's just like, they, they're just not, they're not doing that, right? And there's three things that 70-year-old people hold a lot less tightly than 40-year-old people, and that is stuff, grudges, and uh, other people's opinions. Have you noticed this? That the older you get, that people that as they approach 70 are less and less likely to cling on to things like stuff, grudges, and people's opinions. And, and, and then the sad thing becomes, either for Christians or non-Christians, is that all of this stuff that stops mattering for some that are not believing in Jesus, ultimately I see a level of depression and emptiness that leads to just nothing matters. But if you are a Christian and you fling your life on Jesus from 20 to 70, what ultimately happens is a beautiful thing where all of the world stops mattering and only Jesus matters. And that's the making of a martyr. There's a character in, in, in Genesis chapter 5 named Enoch. It's said that he never even had a funeral. He walked with God and then was no more. He had a moment where, I don't know, maybe it was his left foot or his right foot, but he took a step and his left foot was on earth, but his right foot was in heaven. He was literally in some moment in time, we have to imagine if he walked with God and was no more, that it, he was living in a place where his left foot was on earth, but his right foot was in heaven. And that's what I see of those that are long enough to walk out the, the hard road with Jesus over 60 and 70 years, is that the way that we become martyrs is everything else stops matter except for Jesus. So here's the convic- convicting part about this, about the testimony of Stephen and other people that you talk to in the Christian faith, is really, as I'm convicted about the fact that I, I, I can confess to you today, I, sh- I share the gospel with less people today having knowing more about the gospel and having more evidence of the gospel in my life than I did when I was 20. I was more zealous when I was 20 than I am at 40. And all of that seems to point to this, is that the reason why we don't witness probably has less to do with our fears and more to do with our loves. That actually the reason why the church doesn't witness isn't because it needs more equipping or more inspiration or because it's really afraid of it. You know what? I really don't, like, I'm not a, you know, you see the way I dance at weddings. I don't care what people think as much, right? Ask Kyra. It's not really because I'm afraid. You know what it is? It's because I have so many things that I love now. I love my little hobbies, and I love my exercise, and, 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 and I love my space now. I like to have my space. I like to have my own room, and I like to sleep in my own thing and have my own. I love my kids, and I love my candy bars, and I love my sports, and I love my things, and I just don't want anybody to touch them because everybody's going to take them away if I don't defend them. And so ultimately, as I reflect on my heart, I can only speak for myself. The reason why I'm probably not as bold a witness as when I was 20 is not because I'm afraid. It's because of what I love. It's because I have things added. And so when I see Stephen's eyes, I see his mouth, I don't see him earning notches about an accountability group that he's going to go back to his church and say, I shared with 10 people. You know what I see? A laid down love for the people that are stoning him because nothing else matters except for Jesus. 
And so I want to encourage you, the spirit inside of you is come to take you and me to the ends of the earth by hook or by crook. We're going to be kicking and screaming the whole way. But you know what he has to do in, in, in the journey to get there? He's got to tear down our temples. He's got to tear down every cow and every den and every plan that I have to get to the good place, to the good people, to do good, good stuff. Because here's the deal. Whatever it is that you have in that picture of Disneyland with the Monica and, and, and Ross and the security boards, that ain't it. If it's not with Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus, it's not the blessing. And he is too good to let you settle for a curse in the light of that blessing. He is dragging you, kicking and screaming down every road that you don't want to go to get you to Jesus because Jesus is better than cows. And so I just want to call us as we consider what does it mean to be a martus, a real martyr, a living martyr, whether you're just serving with kids or serving. It's like we don't have to be George Washington, but we are Americans, right? We don't have to be Stephen, but we're all martyrs. We all have a cup of cold water to bring, and all, we all have a step of obedience from this life into the next. And so really, the yoke of a martyr is not guilt. It's gratitude. I don't, I don't, I don't cry for Stephen. I cry for those Sanhedrin people because they're still going out on cows while, while Stephen's laying out his life in, in Jesus. We're going to figure it out when we're 70 or when it's now to turn it all over. But this is what I think is the heart of, of Stephen is just absolute gratitude that Jesus has rescued him from his sins, that Jesus has let been too good to, to allow him to stay where he is, that Jesus has been knocking over every, every idol in his heart until he can stand before the Sanhedrin, even at his life, and say it matters nothing compared to Jesus. And that's the, that's the triumph of the gospel, not, not the tragedy. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.